What if the last three years had never happened the way they did? What if there were colossal ideas, events, and facts that were purposefully misrepresented or even hidden from the public that could have completely changed the world as we now know it? Was that your laptop? For real, I don't know. I know, but, but you know that's, is, this I is I really a... don't know okay. what the answer is. And what would happen when those truths came to light? You're fired. It didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. But it seems like what's happened here is quite a few of these government agencies have taken up a new tactic, and that is to try to sway private companies to do their dirty work for them. Philip Magnus is the Director of Research and Education at AIER. He was actually the person who had done the FOIA request on the Fauci emails, the same emails that Fauci is now being questioned about in court. God help us. On November 23, 2022, Fauci sat for a sworn deposition about his own actions in directing the United States pandemic response and his role in suppressing so-called misinformation. In the FOIA request emails, Phil Magnus and his colleagues discovered something wholly unexpected. In early October of 2020, Dr. Francis Collins, then director of the NIH, Poof, coronavirus. ordered Fauci and his trusted Lieutenant Clifford Lane to wage a quick and devastating published takedown of a declaration written by eminent epidemiologists from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. The GBD was based on long-withstanding, evidence-based pandemic policies, but the problem was, it directly competed with the interests of the top-down, unprecedented response to a respiratory virus. Some will look and say, well, maybe we've gone a little bit too far. What would the last three years have looked like if we hadn't had lockdowns, masks, and mandates? If we hadn't have had the Hunter Biden story and the GBD censored and suppressed through big tech, with the involvement of the highest levels of governmental institutions. The Twitter files and the Fauci deposition are exposing the collusion between big tech and big government, and how that symbiotic relationship made it possible to craft narratives that changed the course of history. What I really wanted to ask Phil first was, what do you see as the thread that ties this together? Well, I think the thread that uh, we're seeing is common on both of these stories is the role of government, the role of politicians in trying to put their thumb on the scale, trying to sway social media companies to do their dirty work for them. Uh, you know, Congress is forbidden from banning speech outright by the First Amendment. Uh, government agencies cannot engage in uh, speech suppression through their own actions. So it seems like what's happened here is quite a few of these government agencies have uh, taken up a new tactic, and that is to try to sway private companies to do their dirty work for them. Uh, and you see that both in the Twitter case uh, with uh, uh, figures from the political class, figures from the White House. Uh, in some cases, it's uh, uh, agency uh, representatives like Anthony Fauci at the NIH that are in direct communication with these uh, private companies uh, telling them, uh, that, you know, the recurring message is you need to police against quote-unquote misinformation. And if you don't engage in uh, policing misinformation, then we'll call you before Congress and uh, subject you to a regulatory hearing. Uh, so there are all these uh, kind of subversive tactics that they're using to um, induce the private companies into engaging in behavior that politicians themselves are forbidden from doing by the First Amendment. Yeah, so one interesting thing that um, echoes what you're saying here that came up in the Twitter files was that there was this, if you follow Matt Taibbi, he's done a wonderful thread on this where he goes through basically everything that, that they've uncovered there. And um, he shows in this one tweet how they said, we've gotten the 
tweets from the Biden administration that we need to take care of. And now they've been taken care of. I'm paraphrasing that. Uh, what do you see there as like, what's your what's your take on that whole story? Yeah, well, there was a clear case where the executives of uh, Twitter as a corporation, the pre-Elon Musk version of it, uh, the one that existed in 2020, um, had a very clear political preference among them. They, uh, something like, uh, in, in excess of 95% of Twitter's political campaign donations went to the Democratic Party, which is fine, whatever. There are different SKUs in different industries and different firms. But uh, you started to see that manifest itself in the way that they were responding to requests from the respective campaigns in the 2020 election. Uh, I mean, I'll disclose fully in my own stake, I, uh, I was not satisfied with either candidate in the 2020 election, uh, did not support either Trump or, uh, or Joe Biden. But uh, the fact remains that a company such as Twitter uh, was certainly much more on the Joe Biden side than they were on the Trump side, to put it mildly. Uh, and what you have there is a case where Twitter executives uh, are essentially kind of putting their thumb on the scale of the way that media coverage unfolds. And uh, the clear evidence that's coming out of these files uh, from uh, the emails that uh, Elon Musk has permitted to be disclosed is that a couple of executives at the top of the uh, uh, organization at Twitter, uh, uh, I think Vijaya Gaddy is the was the main person. She was the legal compliance officer for the corporation. Uh, basically, made this call that they were going to block the New York Post from publishing on Twitter a uh, very negative and damaging story. The story about the Hunter Biden laptop uh, that came out just uh, just over two weeks before the 2020 election. Uh, so this was seen as a damaging story for the Biden campaign. Uh, of course, it's being promoted by the Trump campaign for reasons that aren't hard to discern. But uh, they said uh, basically they were going to weigh in and use Twitter's policies against hacked information uh, to censor the story from appearing on the platform. And this sent off ripples throughout the company. And this is what's come uh, out of some of the documentation that's been provided. Uh, there were internal voices in the company, even those on the left, that said, I think we're going too far here. I think this is a, uh, a, a bad decision. There's some evidence that uh, they may have even obscured it from uh, the CEO of the company at the time, Jack Dorsey, uh, with this other group of executives. But they made a very clear decision that had strong political implications. And the other thing that we we saw after that, when Twitter was the first actor that moved to censor the New York Post on running the uh, uh, the Biden laptop uh, story, uh, yes. all of these other social media companies followed suit. They took that as a cue. So, well, we should engage in censorship too. And then the next day, the media trots out these supposed national security experts uh, that claimed with no evidence whatsoever that this was Russian disinformation. A Russian hacker must have gotten into the, the Biden laptop and uh, provided this to the Trump campaign, which actually turns out years later, we, uh, we know was a complete falsehood. Uh, they were just making it up as they go, but they were doing it in a fashion that uh, realized the political implications of the story, and they decided very quickly they were going to put their thumb on the scale and make sure that uh, this story that was potentially damaging in a very closely contested election, one that could have gone almost either way, uh, didn't see the light of day uh, two weeks out from the election. So uh, just from an ethical perspective, standing back from like a, a journalism ethics and a corporate ethics perspective, uh, this is clear interference in um, 
political operations of the United States, uh, political election of the United States, for reasons that were not uh, fully disclosed to the public at the time. It's it's completely wild. And I'm just going to zoom in on this tweet thread here. Um, in the Twitter files, number 36 of Matt Taibbi's thread, somebody called Sasbo wrote a letter containing chilli chilling passages relaying Democratic law lawmakers' attitudes. They want more moderation, and as for the Bill of Rights, it's not absolute. So they said the First Amendment is not absolute. And, and there's the interesting thing. It's, uh, it's not just Twitter doing this on their own. There are open channels of communication between Twitter executives and Democratic politicians. And, you know, this would be wrong if it was uh, on the other side, if it was open communication between Republican po politicians and uh, corporate officers. Uh, it, it, but what it shows is it's not strictly a private actor uh, through Twitter as the corporation. Uh, this is a private actor that is colluding with uh, political figures that have vested interests in the outcomes of decisions that are made by the corporation itself. Uh, and I think there was a, one of the other tweets he showed, there was only one single member of the uh, Democratic Party. It was a, a representative who, uh, who spoke out and said, wait a minute, I think this is kind of wrong what they're doing on First Amendment grounds. Uh, so uh, uh, Matt Tiebe's, uh whole point here is that the majority of the Democratic Party looked at this act of private censorship and basically gave them the thumbs up and said, yes, we need corporations to do more of that. And you see the same pattern playing out. You move over into COVID misinformation or some of these other areas, climate change misinformation. It's the same argument that's deployed over and over again, uh, mostly coming from the left right now, where they're saying we need these companies to step in and uh, regulate speech on their platform, control misinformation. And if they don't, uh, there's always like this, uh, this subtle threat behind it. Uh, we're going to make their lives miserable in the political scene. We'll call them before hearings and put pressure on them to regulate. Uh, so it's kind of like a wink nod, do this on your own or else there will be consequences. Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting, too, because in the world that we live in now, right, these corporations have grown to be so large that some of them maybe are even bigger than governments. And so right. the amount of power that they possess is quite enormous. Do they have some kind of responsibility to not be colluding with government? Like, do you think that this is a possible violation of the First Amendment? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky legal area because it's... It, it, gets down to where do you draw that line. Now, there are some Supreme Court precedents going back uh, decades upon decades that basically say the government itself cannot overtly recruit another private sector actor to do its dirty work, to do its bidding and suppressing speech. Uh, so the legal theory here is that uh, uh, Twitter had crossed that line and some of the politicians and, and uh, administrative officials that were putting pressure on these companies had crossed that line. Uh, if you remember back over uh, uh, the summer, there was this whole controversy about the Department of Homeland Security had basically appointed this misinformation czar. Hovering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster to take some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet so disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious Yes. Uh, who was a uh, you know a bit of a zealot uh, Twitter warrior, uh, and they, they were claiming that this is a national security threat that people post quote unquote misinformation on on social media. Uh, well, that that's setting up an entire agency to uh, wh whose whole function is to induce and provide this type of a pressure on private companies to do its bidding. Uh, that does get into some constitutional territory uh, of where it's 
you know, a, a line needs to be drawn. It's like a wall of separation between corporation and state would be a good standard here. Uh, otherwise, you don't get a purely private actor in the corporation side, and you don't get a purely public actor in the politician side that are meddling in private corporate affairs. Uh, rather, it's like this collusive arrangement uh, that gets to the worst of political cronyism. Well, what's interesting there as well is that uh, the political left and, you know, the more extreme you go on that spectrum of the political left, the more you see people like Antifa um, or or yeah. those who proclaim that their enemies uh, are fascists, right? But what what you're describing sounds to me like fascism. Right. Right. Well, there's there's all these language games that are played um, in the political spectrum. You know, it's it's become a tactic on the left to label everything they dislike. It's like everything to the right of Stalin is fascist. And of course, you know, there are people on the right that do the same thing. They'll look at uh, uh, left of center democratic policies and they'll say, well, that's socialist or that's communist. Uh, so it, it's a name calling tactic. But it's, mm-hmm. now it's been embraced by, uh, in like this Orwellian way, by parts of our political spectrum where the very same people that are uh, uh, basically embracing and cheering on private corporations for colluding with the government to regulate speech are, uh, are the ones that are calling uh, the, the speech that they want regulated fascist or totalitarian. And yet they have like no retrospection on the fact that their own actions are, uh, are very similar to what we see in authoritarian regimes of the state and the private sector uh, actually colluding together uh, to exercise control that would go against the basic norms and basic rights of a society. It's really something to behold, and it's, it's amazing to me that people don't see it. But I suppose if you don't want to see that, then you're not going to see it. You're going to see what you want to see. I want to actually kind of tie together uh, the Twitter files as well as the Fauci deposition. Um, There's a common actor actually there, and that's the attorney, the deputy attorney from Missouri, right, who is dealing with both of those files. Um, So what he had found, his name is Eric Schmidt, and what he had found here was that the FBI was actually also involved in suppressing the Hunter Biden story and in directing Twitter. I guess then it can be said that the government was directly involved in suppressing speech. Right. I mean, I think there's more evidence coming out of this lawsuit uh, almost daily now. So it is a very, very much a live story. Uh, but the signs that we're seeing are, are, are pointing toward people within the government, uh, whether it's agencies like the FBI or it's the National Institutes of Health, that are in communication with executives at these social media firms. Uh, I, th- I mean, Mark Zuckerberg basically admitted uh, that the uh, the White House was calling him <laughs> to talk about COVID information. And I look at this as someone who's, you know, I'm, I philosophically support limited government. And I want to ask the question, why does the White House have any business whatsoever in telling Facebook what's permitted on its website? All of these kind of truths are being exposed. Like these lawsuits are kind kind of finally catching up with the reality of how suppression of speech has really changed the course of history over the last few years in, in really significant ways, right? I mean, you have the whole right. COVID narrative and you have possibly election interference. And so we would be living in a very different world, I think, if we hadn't have 
had all of those things hidden from the public. So maybe what we can do is just pivot to Fauci. And you just published an essay on this this afternoon, which I encourage uh, people to go read, which is forgetful Fauci's deposition. All those lies are hard to keep straight. So let's talk a little bit about the Fauci deposition. What happened there? What was the lawsuit? And um, what do you know about it? Because I know AIR and yourself personally were, of course, involved in some freedom of information requests to, to uncover some of these truths. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the fall of last year, uh, fall of 2021. Uh, so Ethan Yang and I uh, submitted a Freedom of Information Act request uh, to the National Institutes for Health, uh, asking for public records from the period of the Great Barrington Declaration to figure out uh, if it was considered, what they said about it, what they discussed. Uh, I mean, we were interested out, out of, uh, uh, you know, public information reasons, had no idea what we were going to find, uh, so we submitted that request. And then last December, uh, the first batch of emails arrived from it, and of course they're heavily redacted, so we don't get uh, the entire list of everything that happened, uh, but we, what we did discover uh, was kind of like the smoking gun email that a couple of days after the Great Barrington Declaration came out, Francis Collins, who's the uh, director of the uh, National Institutes for Health, basically Fauci's boss, uh, and then Fauci's the head of one of the sub-agencies there. Uh, he's, uh, so Francis Collins sends an email around. Uh, it says that uh, uh, we need to do something to, to counter these, quote, fringe epidemiologists, and what we need is a quick and devastating published takedown. Uh, that's basically the quote from it of the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, and then he follows up with some questions like, I don't see anything out yet. Um, uh, and he's basically prodding them. Are you working on this or, or are you, uh, you finding something? And then Fauci responds within 10 minutes, uh, not with a scientific rebuttal, but copying and pasting a bunch of political editorials attacking uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, defending the lockdown position. That triggers a whole series of emails that plays out for basically the next several weeks where it shows internal to the NIH, they are trying to do everything they can to spin the media uh, against the Great Barrington Declaration. So a few days later, Collins uh, does a big interview with the Washington Post where uh, he repeats the fringe epidemiology uh, line to them and they publish it. And then there's an email from Fauci says that I agree with everything you say. And then a couple days later, Fauci goes on national TV and denounces the Great Barrington Declaration. And he and then he emails Deborah Burks and said, "Here's my uh, uh, my statement against the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, I'm afraid that Scott Atlas is going to bring this up at the next COVID task force meeting, so we need to be prepared for that." Uh, uh, so it's all this uh, kind of internal collusion to basically discredit, attack, and personally smear the scientists rather than engaging in their arguments. Uh, so that's yeah. the first phase of it. That comes out in all the FOIA emails, and we published a piece on that. And what happened is, uh, so this attorney general's case, is they saw those emails, they saw some other emails of evidence of the White House putting pressure on other people uh, to, to bury parts of the COVID story, co uh, the COVID narrative that they didn't want to get out there, things that contradicted uh, the policy stances that they had questioned. And that's everything from uh, uh, people that were skeptical of lockdowns, mask mandates. If you question a mask mandate, that was misinformation. Uh, if you question the effectiveness of masks, that was uh, cited as misinformation. Uh, and then they started to get into the, uh, uh, the vaccine mandates. 
uh, that they started claiming was misinformation. So there's a whole succession of these things. And uh, we saw some messages that were leaked that came out of the White House uh, where they were basically saying certain accounts on Twitter are responsible for uh, spreading misinformation. And they're basically asking the company itself to censor and suppress those accounts. Yes. So all revealed by this strategy that started uh, uh, internal to the NIH that triggers subsequent investigations. And then now we have a, a live and active lawsuit uh, that is basically calling Fauci and the NIH and the White House out for uh, uh, engaging in potentially illegal behavior. He contradicts himself a lot in the deposition in order to kind of keep up his, his own narrative for things. Um, but what I really want to emphasize here to our audience is that there's clearly some kind of conflict there because what Fauci was doing, and one of the things that he claims is that I was busy trying to develop a vaccine. Right. And, and so, you know, one would think that, of course, if that was your interest and that was what was driving you, then of course you would be concerned with another idea, which was that, you can do things a different way. And also, Fauci wanted lockdowns. He, he, you know, he sent somebody to China, right? Yeah, it's the same guy that CC'd on this directive uh, from Francis Collins to attack the Great Barrington Declaration was Fauci's deputy who went to China and came back saying, well, they're, they're being very effective in containing the virus with lockdowns. Uh, maybe we should do that too, uh, was yes. basically the message that we're getting out of that. So it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's the same actors involved. And here's the recurring theme with Fauci. Uh, you know, he claims he's this great representative of the science. He claims that he is uh, guided by uh, uh, the, the principles of scientific inquiry. Uh, and yet time and time again, he's really engaging in politics. He's a political actor. Mm -hmm. And most of these decisions, I think, are, are a result of, A, he's stumbling his way through this pandemic, not really knowing what he's doing. And B, he's making missteps along the way, everything from his changing opinion on masks to uh, uh basically embracing the lockdown strategy to contradicting himself, praising Governor Cuomo's actions in New York as the model for uh, the rest of the country to copy. Uh, he had all these flip-flops and contradictions. And when he gets challenged on that, his instinct is to become defensive of his own narrative, his own past, and his own performance during the pandemic. And that means something that challenges him, like the Great Barrington Declaration did, uh, isn't to be countered on scientific merits, it's to be attacked and smeared and torn down uh, because it disrupts his own personal narrative. It uh, makes him look bad for the decisions that he made. It seems like he's not aware throughout his deposition that everything that he's saying just makes him look worse and worse because he's clearly contradicting himself. One of those examples was when they brought up how he had written an email to a colleague of his, I believe, on she was going to be traveling and wanted to know if she should be wearing a mask. And he writes her this email saying, no, you know, it's not really going to do anything for you. Don't wear a mask in the airport. And then he is like the mouthpiece for the mask propaganda, you know, a few weeks after that. Yeah, well, I mean, you see a guy that he's pretending as if he's in command of all this information and pretending as if he has a plan going forward. Uh, he really has projected this error of confidence around himself uh, that when Fauci speaks, that's the authority. And when you peek behind the curtain, what you really see is uh, not only the succession of self-contradictions and flip-flopping, uh, really the way that the guy operates is uh, I, I really don't think he's 
all that abreast of the science he purports to be speaking on behalf of. Rather, he has teams underneath him that uh, he'll send out a request or a directive, and they go out to the news media, and they'll aggregate all these uh, political editorials and stories that uh, reaffirm the line that uh, that Fauci wants to tell, something that fits him. Uh, so it's a curated uh, talking points. And then they send them back to Fauci, and then he goes on CNN that night and reads back the media's own talking points to it. So yes. it's, it's like this circular echo chamber he's in. And we saw that directly in the Great Barrington Declaration emails. He did not have a scientific response. Instead, he goes to Wired Magazine and The Nation and all these political op-ed outlets uh, that are, are giving these talking points. And he cuts and pastes them uh, into emails. They circulate around the NIH staff. And then later that evening, he's on TV reading the talking points back to them. Yeah, it's just incredible, but it's wholly unsurprising. And another contradiction comes when the attorney is asking him what he thinks about having both sides of a debate uh, in terms of the scientific sense, like you should be exposed to both sides of a debate in order to make a decision. And Fauci agrees with that in the deposition. And then he asks him, but do you think then that it should be uh, censored on social media? If <laughs> if it's not right. the right side of the debate. And he says, well, you know, maybe I do sometimes, basically. He basically admits, and those are not his exact yeah. words. I encourage people to read the deposition themselves. But he basically admits that he thinks that there that not all ideas are created equal or should be distributed equal. You know, this is consistent with his pattern. Uh, I think when he settles on an idea that he personally supports or agrees with, uh, he starts to look at competing ideas as being outside of the science. And this is back to the, uh, uh, you know, there was that famous interview, infamous interview, where he comes in and says, I represent the science and uh, anyone who's attacking me is attacking science. Uh, I think he does actually buy into that line about himself. But what that means is when there's a, a matter of scientific dispute and he's already taken a stance on it, he starts to see the other side of that scientific dispute is outside of the realm of permissible conversation because he's already made a decision. Therefore, the science is settled. That, that's just kind of the way that he works through these things. One of the things that, that comes across as well with him is the way that he pretends that it doesn't matter. Like he says, I'm not involved in social media. Like, I don't really know what goes on there. You know, so he's saying all of this, like he's not concerned with social media, but he's concerned with misinformation and disinformation. Right, right. And then when he gets pushed and they're asking him basically, well, what do you think about the fact that you talked to Mark Zuckerberg you know, 13 times or something exactly. in 2020, you know, what does that have to do with anything? Or the fact that his daughter works at Twitter, or excuse me, she used to work at Twitter until about a Twitter, year yeah. ago, right? So he's saying like, I don't, I don't care about social media, but he's connected with the most powerful people in social media. And his mm -hmm. narrative has been the one that's been propagated on social media. And there have been dire, dire consequences because of that, essentially propaganda. Oh, that's exactly it. And when you saw some of the censorship that was occurring in places like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, uh, that they'd put up a little notice below something that they declare COVID misinformation. And what is it? It's a link to an Anthony Fauci news story. It's a link to Anthony Fauci says that this is wrong. Uh, so they are using him as the scientific authority. Uh, and, and, you know, he you have to be pretty oblivious if you're Anthony Fauci and you're going and talking to these company executives on a regular basis and not thinking, not really 
realizing that they're also using your own words uh, to engage in these censorship activities. And I, I think this is where we really get into some of the uh, evasive answers uh, where, where Fauci starts to skirt the truth and the deposition is, uh, you know, they, they've presented evidence that he is, in fact, uh, in kind of the symbiotic relationship of, of communicating back and forth with social media companies, uh, has all sorts of, of angles that he can influence them, uh, yet at the same time, he's playing uh, like this aloof, oblivious person that doesn't really know what's going on uh, when they are using his own words to engage in censorship. Uh, I, I, I mean, this is back to why we need the full email records, why we need unredacted copies of some of these documents, because they show Fauci's actions in real time are not the same as how he's defending himself and claiming this aloofness or claiming that, uh, well, I was busy developing a vaccine or I was busy running a $6 billion agency. I didn't have time to think about the Great Barrington Declaration. And that's paraphrasing <laughs> one of the answers that he gave. Uh, and I'm sitting there reading that. And I'm like, you didn't think, have time. And yet I have two weeks of emails here back and forth where you're talking about the Great Barrington Declaration. You certainly had time in your email to do that. Certainly had yeah. time to uh, ask Greg Falkers, his, his uh, chief of staff, to go out and research anti-Great Barrington Declaration articles. Um, and yet you don't remember that. So, uh, so this is where his own internal narrative is not holding up. Yeah, he actually said, I think, I don't recall... 174 times or something throughout yeah. the deposition. Somebody counted it, Eric Schmidt, uh, the attorney. So, you know, what's, again, what I'd like to emphasize for people here is that this has really changed the course of history. Like all of yeah. these things didn't have to happen this way. And so yeah. more broadly, Phil, what do you think that this says about the current state of uh, politics, the current state of affairs, like where we're at as a society, as Americans, and more in general for the West who followed the U.S.'s response to, to COVID lockdowns and mandates and things like that. What does this say about where we're at? Well, you know, I think it's really troubling because uh, other countries around the world, they did look to the United States and they looked to Anthony Fauci as the spokesperson on behalf of the U.S. COVID response. He was, you know, trotted out there as like this hero. Uh, we also know, and this is some of the more recent FOIA emails that we've gotten, although there's a twist on it. Uh, so uh, just a week ago, we received a new package from the NIH of emails that we had requested. And they were uh, the request was for Anthony Fauci's correspondence with his counterparts in Great Britain uh, during the period of the lockdown and the period of the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, so a, a very important public record. Well, we requested that. They gave us 61 pages of emails. 58 of them are completely redacted. The only evidence that we have are, are just like the headers of the first couple of emails that show in that time frame they were corresponding. So the NIH is like really locked down on its redaction. They, uh, they, they, uh, they claim these exemptions that exist in federal law uh, that allow them to not release public information. Uh, but it seems like that they've gone overboard. And I think what uh, they're realizing there is that the last time they gave us uh, the, the FOIA response, the one from a year ago, uh, it really did come back and bite them because it turned into a major 
major media story turned into uh, the basis of the investigation that led to the attorney general case in Missouri. Yes. Uh, so, so now they're being, uh, they're, they're almost like on their own internal lockdown mode of the information they release, even though we know that there's information uh, that comes from Fauci's correspondence with his counterparts in other countries. Wow. Well, that's, that's so huge, Phil. And that's something to be proud of, you know, on your part, Ethan Yang, and, you know, for AIER and everybody else who was involved with the Great Barrington Declaration at the time, and also with these uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. I still wonder, though, you know, if Fauci will be held accountable uh, for what he's done here and for other actors, right. you know, who were involved, like Francis Collins. And it brings me to, you know, the idea that bureaucracies, you know, they seem to be kind of like yeah. self-protective and they create these, you know, different factions uh, that make it really easy to attribute blame to somebody else. And, and Fauci yeah. does this near the end of the deposition where they ask him about his media communications team. And he says, well, you know, they, they do things on their own, you know, like if they decided right. to engage in any activities that were related to censorship or suppression of information or controlling narratives, they, they, they might've done it. I don't know, but I, I certainly didn't direct them, you know, and that was kind of his response. And so can you can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what happens with bureaucracies in this way and how people may or may not be held accountable? Yeah, it's it's classic public choice theory, uh, regardless of what type of bureaucracy you're dealing with. We know that bureaucracies are not these impartial scientific implementers of the will of, uh, of the people as expressed through the legislature. It's not as if Congress passes a bill and then these uh, uh, impartial administrative uh, figures come in and, and simply implement it. Uh, they, the typical bureaucrat, the people that go into quote-unquote public service, uh, usually has an interest in the policy area that they are uh, are working in. And that interest can be very active in trying to shape the policy itself, even though it's not being done through democratic legislative means. Uh, they're doing it through edict and mandate and order. And yet, when you get someone who's a pretty uh, skilled and smooth bureaucratic operator, uh, someone who has an established presence, a very large budget, a very loyal staff behind them, uh, you get what, what I liken to the J. Edgar Hoover effect. If everyone remembers J. Edgar Hoover, he was the uh, the guy that was basically the head of the FBI in the United States for, for something like 40 or 50 years that stretched from the 1930s into the 1970s uh, that he was uh, the, this figure at the top of the agency. And it's become a classic story because what did Hoover do is uh, over the course of his career, he became increasingly entrenched. Uh, he became corrupt. He started accumulating all these files. He knew where the bodies were buried uh, in Washington. He knew where the skeletons were in different closets. And that meant that he exercised immense political power uh, over everything up to the White House, to the lowest member of Congress, uh, uh, to, to, to any elected official that are actually supposed to be uh, uh, making the decisions, and then he starts deploying this. Uh, well, Fauci's 
had a very similar career path of liking him to J. Edgar Hoover, the NIH. Here's a guy that started as a very young man uh, almost 50 years ago in the federal bureaucracy, and he's been the head of the same agency for over 40 years. Uh, that's someone who's accumulated an immense amount of power and control over what comes out of that agency, and especially it's, it's one that has a lot of funding behind it that makes uh, $6 billion in decisions about grant money uh, this year. And I, I know this from scientists I've spoken to that have basically told me uh, they're afraid to publicly criticize Fauci because their research department at their university is dependent on uh, a uh, $500,000 NIH grant coming through later this year. And if you're criticizing the boss of the NIH, uh, you imperil your grant chances, and that means your your department no longer has a budget. It shuts down. Uh, so uh, you, you have a very skilled political bureaucratic operator that no one's ever elected, no one's ever voted for, no one's ever even specifically empowered to do these tasks, uh, and yet he's managed to find himself on top of the uh, political food chain, basically calling the shots now for two presidential administrations in deep and significant ways that have impacts on our day-to-day -day life. Another one that comes to mind, I don't know if you've ever read Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, um, mm -hmm. right? So a report on the banality of evil. The Eichmann case provides us with the fact that you have somebody who's sitting there in court saying, well, I, you know, this wasn't really my responsibility. This wasn't really my idea. Oh, here I was just following orders. Oh, you know, this wasn't such a big deal. And what Hannah Arendt had noted was that Eichmann, he, he really remembered events in terms of his career and different stages in his career right. and his personal life rather than in the atrocities that he was committing. And so, again, this kind of spins back to public choice and what you're saying about incentives that people have and people like Fauci and, you know, this was a great career moment for him. He became famous, Absolutely. essentially. Yeah, you know, he, his rewards are, uh, uh, you know, pandemics are bad things. And I, I'm not going to argue that Anthony Fauci wants pandemics to happen, uh, quite the contrary, but they are a political opportunity when they come along. It means that uh, now suddenly uh, the public sector is inclined to grant every budget request that someone could ever have. It means that the media wants uh, you on camera, uh, wants you uh, on their TV station. They want you in, in their newspapers. Uh, so all the incentives that come out of that from Fauci uh, are very much aligned with him to continue some of the behaviors that he adopted, uh, including where they strayed away from this pure scientific administrator. You know, F.A. Hayek makes a very similar point, says that the type of people that rise to the top of bad regimes, illiberal regimes, and he's saying, you know, whether this is the extreme situations of Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia uh, or just uh, just general authoritarian, illiberal regimes. Uh, he says the people, the, the worst, tend to rise to the top because they're the true believers in their own conviction. They think that they're doing something right and uh, they think that they're on the side of justice and uh, that means that anything and everything that stands in their way can be shoved aside or ignored or in some cases even suppressed uh, because it's justifiable because the end that they're after uh, 
basically means that that means is now permissible. So uh, I think you do, you very much get political incentives aligning with an ends justify the means approach. And Fauci's even said this in some of his interviews. He, you know, he, he went on on uh, camera and basically said, yeah, well, I lied about uh, the efficacy of, of aspects of masking uh, because it was in the better interest of the public that they do these certain things at certain times. Uh, I lied about what I thought the herd immunity threshold was in because I was trying to induce more of the public to uh, get vaccination boosters. Uh, He's gone on TV and said this several times where he he claims that he is telling the noble lie. Uh, And as the noble liar, because it's for an end that he has determined is right, uh, that is somehow morally permissible to him uh, to justify actions that are really not above the board. And, you know, you get someone in a a type of a position that has that mindset, uh, the noble lies start to spread. And I think now what we have is after two and a half, three years almost of this guy being on the the front page of the pandemic response... uh, uh, being on on TV and on camera every night, uh, he's put, become addicted to his own celebrity, and uses that to rationalize uh, almost subconscious deviations from the truth. And you see that in the in the, in the deposition. I mean, here's a guy that uh, is responding question by question to things that he knows uh, are wrong, things that he knows that they've caught him on. Uh, but it's just this evasion. Uh, it's just yeah. this, uh, well, I have a rationale why I did this. Uh, he never admits to doing things wrong, never admits, says, well, that was an error. He says, well, I had a rationale and it was for uh, for the better judgment at the time, or I don't remember yes. that or um, it's, it's, it's just a recurring evasion that you see as a pattern from this guy. And do you think then that bureaucrats, and especially, you know, in the state of bureaucracy now, where it's so huge, it's so bloated, it's so yeah. big, um, do you think that then they have those kinds of incentives to not be accountable? That's exactly the case. I mean, especially when you have one that's been anointed by the media as a celebrity, uh, where uh, you know they buy into him when he says that he claims he's the representative of the science. Uh, it insulates them from uh, just the normal processes, and we saw this in the in the House and Senate testimony that Fauci gave. Uh, if you remember, several times Rand Paul would uh, would confront him about uh, uh, actions that turns out that Rand Paul was right about, so like the suppression mm-hmm. of the lab leak uh, theory, uh, and then Rand Paul grilled them about some of these same emails that we found in the FOIA request. Uh, and what, what was the media story? Uh, well, they, they would always buy into Fauci's response, and Fauci would go on there and, and, and offer like this really uh, not very substantive, kind of vacuous, but uh, soundbite-style response and say, Senator Paul, no, you're lying. And the next thing you know, it's CNN headline, Fauci uh, uh, shuts down Rand Paul. And Rand Paul's just reading the emails from the documents. Uh, so, so it's a really one-sided thing because the media clearly picked a side in the pandemic. And, that, and Fauci was, the, uh, was their champion, their person that they wanted to put forward. So that's exactly it. The media chose a side. And that's where we have another common thread with the Twitter gate and with the exactly. Fauci deposition exactly. is the media chose a side. Do you think, Phil, that anybody will be held accountable for this? 
Well, that, and that's the interesting thing. I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that some of these lawsuits are going forward. Uh, Fauci didn't even want to be deposed in this, and he used all his team of lawyers to try to prevent him from having to come before the attorney general and, uh, and get questioning. But uh, the federal judge so far in the case has said, no, this deposition needs to proceed. And they basically ordered him uh, to come into the room and... Uh, and partake in the, in the deposition. Uh, so that, that shows some sign that uh, at least some of our institutions are working. Uh, you know, it's after the fact. It's, uh, uh, COVID is, is fading slowly into our, uh, our history of the pandemic response. But um, the fact that this guy is at least getting grilled over it and getting investigated over it is a sign that there are some attempts to figure out what went wrong uh, why did we make the missteps that we did, and how did this guy achieve so much power in such a short amount of time? And what do you think about for the Twitter files? Do you think that anybody will be held accountable there? Like, do you think that it will be actual Twitter actors, executives who will take the fall for that, if anyone? Or do you think that yeah. it's possible that because the the FBI was involved and because the government was, or the Democratic Party were involved, do you think that they might take the fall for it? Well, uh, you know, Elon Musk, one of the things that he did uh, as soon as he got uh, he purchased the company is he cleared house, and it seems like he cleared out some of the worst actors. Uh, I mean, the uh, Vijaya Gaddy, who was the uh, the culprit here in suppressing the New York Post story, was one of the first people that he fired. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know the inner details of the workings of Twitter as a company, but uh, at least there seem to be some signs that these uh, some of the worst actors there, their careers have been penalized at least to some degree so far uh, just by clearing them out of there. Uh, I don't know what that does to right the ship of the company, and it's a private company going forward. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that uh, I think we're always going to have the clearest picture of. Uh, but I could foresee, you know, down the line, if the House of Representatives decides to investigate some of the actors on the government side to figure out what they did to pressure these social media companies, the more information that's released about that, the better. It's the sunshine is the best disinfectant uh, uh, line that we, we, we know this from uh, political scandals and everything in the past. We know this from historical research, things that we dig up in the National Archives. Uh, the fact that some of these documents are now actually starting to get out, out into the public, it shows that people that we put our trust in as public-minded administrative actors, as bureaucrats, uh, were actually kind of creepy political operatives, political manipulators. And uh, you know, the downside is uh, part of that has discredited the public health profession in the minds of the public. It's made them less yeah. trustful of it. But at the, at the same time, I think some of that's also necessary uh, because we were far too credulous in accepting what was really bad information at the beginning of the pandemic. I do wonder, though, if, if the government themselves will actually end up being held accountable for this. And I mean, that would be the first amendment amendment violation, right? Like you can't, yeah. um, you can't charge anybody else, like any private actors with a first viol uh, a first amendment violation, right? It, it would only be the government that could be subjected to that law or? Well, yeah. So, so it is uh, strictly public officials. It says no, Congress shall make no law is the, uh, uh, the basic text of the first amendment. And that's been extended to include not, not only Congress, but bureaucrats. And uh, it's been extended to include state government as well as federal government actor. So it's only the the public sector that can uh, uh, be held accountable for that, but uh, the public sector 
by implication and by legal precedent, uh, does not seem to be allowed to uh, flex that muscle to force private actors to do its bidding. So private actors may not be uh, held accountable themselves, but the public agents that did engage in that type of behavior, uh, that is fair game for investigation. I wonder, you know, there's so much ground to cover, as I said at the beginning of this, uh, in both of these stories that are connected. Um, but I wonder if there's anything else that, that you'd like to, to talk about before we, uh, before we end our podcast today. Any last thoughts? No, uh, the main thing is that we still have uh, probably half a dozen uh, FOIA requests out to the NEA, NIH. Uh, I'm not all that confident, based on their most recent one, that they're going to give us much of anything because they seem to be very redaction-heavy at the moment. But uh, there could be more revelations. And I think eventually, as some of these lawsuits and uh, potentially even eventual congressional investigations of what happened during COVID play out, uh, they have a little more power that they can exercise and to compel these agencies to release records. So I do envision the, uh, the long term, uh, the records are going to come out, the truth is going to come out. Uh, it's just a question of, of when and, and what process brings it to the forefront. Well, I'm sure you will be right there. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Phil Magnus. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for coming on.